What are some of the things that people around us here like to spend their time on? I'm sure you can think of lots of examples. It's Loughborough, so it's a bit sport mad, so some people like going running, some people like watching football. This side of town, it seems some people spend a lot of time on their gardens, getting them looking immaculate. I'm told some people like playing computer games. That one's a bit lost on me. Some just love to socialise, whether it's in the students' union or the pub or the bridge club. And some like to go to church. Some people like going to church. Some people are interested in Jesus. Is Jesus on that level? Is Jesus on that level? Another interest. Some people have that interest, some people don't. Just do what you please. Is it a bit fanatical of us to say, you must take notice of Jesus? Shouldn't we just leave people alone to make their own choices, pursue their own interests? Well, that is answered by Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. So, if you've got a Bible, would you turn to that? It would be a big help to have Mark 12, verses 1 to 12 in front of you. Here's a story Jesus told. It's a story to show the authority of Jesus. As I said earlier, it follows on from Jesus has been questioned about his authority in chapter 11. It's a story to tell us, don't mistake God's patience for him being careless about how we treat Jesus. It's a story to warn those who reject the authority of Jesus. I want us to hear the story now, and as we hear it, to do so on three levels. First of all, the story itself. And then what it meant for the people who were challenging Jesus' authority. That's the issue going on in these chapters. And then what it means for us. What I'm going to do is go through the story and keep on doing it on those three levels. So let's start with a remarkably patient vineyard owner. This is verses 1 to 5. A remarkably patient vineyard owner. A man owned some land. And he planted a grapevine in it. And he made it into a vineyard. But he was off living somewhere else. And so he rented it out to farmers to look after it. They would make money out of it. And he'd get some of the produce. Sounded like a good setup. They are called here in this parable tenants. I'm going to use that word quite a lot. I hope you know. A tenant is someone who rents a property. Lives in a place they don't own. Well, harvest time came and the owner is due to get some produce from his vineyard and so he sends a servant. But when he arrives, the farmers beat him up and send him away with nothing. What would you do if you were that vineyard owner? What would your reaction be? Call for the police? Have them thrown out and get new tenants? Take legal proceedings? People can't be allowed to act like that. Well, of course, there weren't police back then, but the owner in that society did have the right to have the authorities bring in heavily armed, trained men who would take vengeance for this insult. And he not only could do that, it would be thought that he should do that because it was an honour culture and you should stand up for your honour. But he doesn't. What does he do? He sends another servant and they beat him up too. And as if to emphasise, you've not stood up for your honour, verse 4 we find, they treat him shamefully. This is a matter of honour and shame. 
Well, now, surely he's going to send the heavy mob in and sort out those scoundrels. No, he sends another servant to again ask for some of the harvest. And the farmers take it a step further. They kill him. And then the owner sends yet more and more, even though the tenants beat up some and kill others. Here's a businessman who appears totally weak and rather silly and certainly dishonoured in order to give these scoundrels repeated chances to do the right thing. Now surely, don't you think Jesus has messed this story up a bit? He's just pushed it a bit too far. It's like a Charles Dickens. Do you ever read them? It's just overblown and exaggerated and got unrealistic, surely. Who would keep going for this long? Who would give people this many chances when they've proved they don't deserve it? God would. That's the answer. God would. And God did. You see, Jesus is is speaking to leaders of the Jewish nation. And he's giving a picture of their history. God had given them the land and given them so many good gifts. And in the Old Testament, it's pictured as a vineyard. By the way, if you want to look it up later, it's Isaiah 5 that Jesus is drawing from, where you have this picture of Israel as a vineyard. But they'd got on and done their own thing. And they pushed God aside as if he had no right to expect anything from them. Leave us alone to do our own thing. And again and again, century after century, God had sent them prophets to warn them and to invite them to turn back to himself. Some they'd beaten up, some they'd imprisoned, one they even threw down a well, and others they killed. God was so patient like this. And he still is. He still is. It's not just a picture of then, it's a picture of now. 2 Peter chapter 3 says, God is not slow in keeping his promise that Jesus will come back. No, he's not being slow, he's being patient with you. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Or 2 Corinthians 5 says, God is appealing with you. He's pleading with you even. That looks a bit weak, but he's willing to do it. He's pleading with you. Be reconciled with him. Won't you be reconciled? Have you for years been living as if God has no right to make demands of you? Has God given you year after year after year? Has God given you chance after chance after chance to turn to him? Maybe you've heard, maybe you've heard his message many, many times. Maybe today is one of many times you've heard and brushed it off and just carried on your own way. Is God being patient with you? Is God waiting for you to turn to him? Next we have... An astonishing decision. This is in verse 6. We've had a patient vineyard owner. Now we have an astonishing decision. Verse 6. Many servants have come back beaten up and empty-handed. What will the owner do? What do you think he should do? Surely now he must send in the authorities. These people are a danger to others. They've proven their character. Not once, not twice, not three times, but many more times. This is what he'll do, verse 6. 
he'll send his son. His son he loves. They'll respect him, he says. Send your son without a bodyguard to protect him to people who've proved vicious. They'll respect him. What are you talking about? Surely again, Jesus' story is unrealistic. Who would do such a thing? And again, the answer is, God would. God did. Sent his son to the people who killed the prophets he'd sent. Sent him without a bodyguard of angels. Sent him as one lone man, a frail-looking human, all on his own. The vineyard owner looks foolish to us, looks a bit weak to us. Can't he see how it's going to end? Whatever makes him so concerned for these people, he'll give them yet another chance, even at the risk of his honour and his son. But Jesus says, that's God. He's not being foolish. He's certainly not weak. He'll end the story in powerful victory and in terrifying destruction of his enemies. But... He's going to send his son to them out of love and give them another chance. What will you do about that? Go home and carry on as if you hadn't heard any good news this morning. Spurn his love, throw it back in his face or say, wow, this God is worth knowing. Him sending his son must be massively important. I I need him. I need to find out more. So let's move on. We have next a foolish response. A foolish response. This is verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. The farmers see the sun coming. Maybe they keep him waiting at the gate while they have a talk. What shall we do? Here's the sun. He sent his son to us. Can you believe it? Well, what shall we do about that? Well, let's kill him. Then we can keep this vineyard for ourselves. Does that sound sensible to you? Kill the owner's son, then we get the vineyard. It doesn't make much sense to me. It doesn't sound very logical. Now, in Judaism back then, there was something like squatters' rights. If a person had been in a property for a certain length of time, they had the right to stay there. Maybe they were hoping for something like squatters' rights. But surely it just doesn't sound very realistic. Surely the owner will come and sort them out. Surely they're not going to get the vineyard through this. They're going to get killed through this. But they seem to think this owner is too distant and weak and uninvolved to be a threat to them. Kill the son and this owner, he's not going to do anything about it. He's weak and distant. Their attitude seems mad to us. How how can they think they'll get away with it? But Jesus was describing exactly the people he was speaking to. Back in chapter 11, you might remember, was it last week I think Tim took us through this? Yes, it was. Back in chapter 11, Jesus had taken over the temple for a while. And he'd shown that they'd made it all about them and what suits them instead of about the worship of God. They're just like the tenant farmers. And now they are thinking, if only we could get rid of this Jesus. He's disrupting our control of things. If we can get rid of this Jesus, we keep our power. We keep our temple our way as we want it. How could they think they'll get away with it? 
Because they think Jesus is just a man who's being a nuisance with no authority or power. And they think God stays distant and leaves us to do what we like. He's just an uninvolved, distant God. The, te- the tenants in the story seem, it seems a foolish decision to us. Maybe the religious leaders back then, you think, well, how foolish they are. But was Jesus describing you? Was he describing you? It's a good thing to be a tenant in God's world. We receive from God. He's so generous. And we're here to live for God. But do you regard yourself like that? Or do you act as if you're the owner? When I was a student, I organised a meeting to consider the rights and wrongs of abortion. Whoa, big, hot topic. I organised a meeting on it, wondered if anyone would turn up, and then loads of people turned up. They turned up to object to it and to close the meeting down. The meeting was unable to continue because they turned up with megaphones and just shouted, our bodies, our lives, our right to decide. Our bodies, our lives, our right to decide. Continuously, so the meeting couldn't happen. Now, let's ignore for the moment there is another body involved in abortion, the little child's body. But there's the human attitude ever since Genesis 3. Our bodies, our lives, our right to decide. We even, like the religious leaders in the temple, tend to turn church into all about us, as if it belongs to us. If you hear that Jesus says, no, you are a tenant in God's world, answerable to him. Do you push him aside? Just another religious claim trying to restrict me. Or do you you carry on doing your own thing? Do you see you're like the tenant farmers, like the religious leaders at the time of Jesus, ignoring who he is, acting as if God is distant and he doesn't get involved? Is he like that? Distant, uninvolved, you'll get away with it. Let's see. We have next a severe but good ending. This is verse 9. Verse 9 gives us a severe but good ending. The owner of the vineyard had looked weak and foolish, but he wasn't. He was being strangely loving and patient to bad people. And at last he comes and he takes action and he doesn't pussyfoot around and he doesn't debate terms with them. And he doesn't sit down for a discussion. He kills the tenants and he gives the vineyard to others. It sounds severe to us. It is severe, but it is good. It's justice being done. And the story was warning those people. God would take severe action against them. And so, with remarkable timing, do you know what happened to those people 40 years later? Now that's interesting, 40 years later, 40 is a significant number in the Bible, God's patience hadn't finished yet. He gave them another 40 years to change, but they didn't. And so in 70 AD, the Roman army marched in and destroyed Jerusalem, and the streets were lined with crucified people, and Old Testament Judaism was brought to an end. Did you know Old Testament Judaism no longer exists? 
Judaism today is nothing like it. It has no priests, it has no sacrifices, it has no temple. It isn't Old Testament Judaism. God brought it to an end in 70 AD. Remarkable timing after giving them 40 years to repent. Oh, you say, that's interesting. I've learned a bit of history today. Thankfully, it's a long time ago. It's all happened in the past, nothing to do with me. No, no, it is to do with us. It's in the Bible here, and God made it happen in history to demonstrate that you and I must take his warning seriously. By the way, in the next chapter, chapter 13, Jesus will use the destruction of Jerusalem as a pointer to him coming back. He'll say they are parallels. He's coming back. And this God who at the moment looks distant and maybe even you think is weak and foolish is actually giving you time and opportunity to turn to him. But his patience has a limit. One day he, the owner, will come back. He will turn up to deal with his tenants who've acted as if they are the owners. And it will be in some ways like Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jerusalem being destroyed tells you this isn't just a story with a psychological meaning. This isn't just about you'd feel more fulfilled if you followed Jesus. It's a warning that God punishes those who reject his son. And that punishment will be no less real and no less terrifying than what he did to Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's what Jesus repeatedly calls hell. Last thing, last thing. This is what Jesus is like. This is where it's all getting to. It's all getting to verses 10 to 12. And it's all heading to this. This is what Jesus is like. Jesus was telling the story to people who'd asked him about his authority. And the story is all about showing them who he is. And so in verse 10, he speaks directly to the people. Haven't you read the scripture? And now he speaks directly to you. Don't you know the scripture? By the way, that means the Bible. And then he quotes the Bible. Psalm 118, by the way. And he quotes it to say, I came to be rejected. It was all in the plan. A plan of love, a plan of patience, a plan to take God's sin and uh, to take our sin and to turn us to God. A plan that looked weak, a man so rejected he was nailed to a cross all on his own left to die. And yet, Psalm 118 says, he is the one God chose and he is the foundation of God's new kingdom. He wasn't a failure. He's won because he's risen from the dead. By the way, later on, have a look in Psalm 118 and you'll find the verse Jesus quoted has just before it the words, I will not die but live. I will not be given over to death. The one rejected by men was chosen by God and he's victorious and he's become the foundation stone for a great new kingdom, a great new vineyard. We call it the church. And so that weak-looking man on a cross 
This day, 5th of March 2023, is being worshipped by millions of people all around the world. That's evidence he isn't just another man with religious claims. He's God's son appointed by him. Even in the very next verse, the enemies, they're plotting to arrest him, but they are just fulfilling the plan. And Jesus will win. Jesus in verses 10 to 11 is telling you the story he's told isn't just a story. It isn't even just a bit of historical interest. He is the son of the owner of the world. He is the one appointed by God. He has come so you may receive this loving patience. But if you spurn it, if you reject it, if you reject him, the ending of the story is your ending. So which will it be for you? Will you throw yourself on God's loving patience? Or will you carry on your way and come under God's severe anger?